Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, and welcome to Series 3 of The Legacy Tapes, a series of podcasts exploring how to leave something lasting in the ephemeral medium of theatre. I'm Rebecca Atkinson-Lord, and today I'm here in a cupboard called The Chokey at the Almeida Theatre um, with Rupert Gould, who's been the artistic director here since 2013. Um, before that, he was the AD at Headlong and the Royal and Durngate Theatres, and he's won pretty much all of the directing awards that the UK's got to offer. Hello. Hi, Rupert. <laughs> Hi. Um, so uh, thank you uh, for chatting to me. Um, I think my first question really is, when you kind of first arrive at a theatre like the Almeida, mm. or when you first arrived here after Michael, were mm. you aware of a legacy that was being kind of passed on, like a baton of of uh, agendas or...? or uh, well, was I? Uh, yes, I suppose so. You Not just Michael, but also Everyone Jonathan else. Ian and, mm. and Pierre Audi before. Um, when I was at Headlong, we had a lawyer uh, who was our chair initially who used to use this old legal saw about my grandfather's axe, which was that... <laughs> it's a famous thing where I like. Yeah, you replace the handle. Replace the handle, replace the, 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 yeah, the yeah. head. Is it still the axe? About Headlong, which of course had been Oxford Stage Company mm-hmm. for many years before that. And how many things did you have to change before it stopped being sort of what it was, yeah. in a way? Um, you know, with, with a touring baseless company, that's probably more. Yeah, because it of is only discussion. the people that. Exactly, hold it. and the policy can change. And I suppose, you know, the, the biggest legacy is protecting the space and the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, Michael had left it in good shape uh, financially, which is not always the case when you take over organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, audience were pretty healthy in terms of like the sales figures were pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm a really strong believer, and I, I um, think it's an un- un- undervalued thing in theatre that uh, a theatre that has an audience is always a valuable theatre. Yeah. Uh, I think there's no point having a fantastic, exciting policy if no one's coming. Um, so, you know, I was I was keenly aware of kind of needing to not, you know, throw everyone out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but beyond that, I suppose artistically, um, if I'm really honest, and this 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 was um, maybe conceited at some level in a way, but I felt like I left headlong uh, or. You know my headlong anyway, um, for a number of reasons. Partly it was a sort of intuitive, that weird merry-go-round that happens when ads all change yeah. and like, do I jump or not? Um, but also it had become harder and harder to tour the work um, mm-hmm. to do with the touring because touring is increasingly hard. Yeah, that yeah. we were losing the idea of getting um, guarantees against loss was sort of mm-hmm. gone, and you're on splits and. Everything was tough, and and actually, to be honest, even as an artist, um, the work I was doing to do as a sort of Monday or Tuesday night opening weekly mm-hmm. touring was was hard. Um, but I felt like the the artistic mission, I suppose, our legacy was still very live, and it was a very sort of emotional and quite painful thing to leave headlong. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I was aware of the Almeida's legacy, but I kind of also was almost more aware of 
Headlong's ongoing legacy. I didn't mm-hmm. know. I, when I said to Jeremy Heron when he got the job uh, taking over from yeah. me that um, you know change the name, trash my legacy. I really, I really believe Eddie should not try and. Um, it's a bit like football managers. If you try and sort of over-author your successors, mm-hmm. it always ends in disaster. Yeah. And I think there are many evidences in theatre of that of people trying to do that. Mm. So I said to Jeremy, just dance over my grave, you know. And, and actually, I'd love you to get rid of the pink logo yeah. and all the other things. Kill my said, darlings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, partly I was trying to be generous, but probably partly also I wanted to take that with me. Right, because uh, that gave you permission to Yeah, do and, and actually, to be honest, quite literally, we took a couple of commissions that, with us mm-hmm. um, that were in infancy or, or maybe even just in discussion point, but were in relationships to me. Yeah. Um, so, um, and also there was this weird situation where two of the first shows in my first year at the Almeida were oh. Chimerica and um, American Psycho, which were both headlong shows. shows that we'd spent years developing. Mm. So it was a quite a sort of um, smooth runway in some ways in terms of artistic policy. Um, or not artistic policy, but like in terms of... Um, and anyway, and it was a, an organisation I knew because I'd done Judas Iscariot here, mm. which had been a quite an influential show for headlong. And, and I think I liked the feel also for the Almeida... Uh, so I had sort of yeah I mean I was sort of wanted to be responsible to, to Michael's legacy um, but it sounds like you you think of legacy as a thing that's attached to a person not necessarily the company it's the artistic the legacy is attached to the artistic voice that's leading a company yeah I mean well I, I, that's what I felt when I started um, okay. at the Almeida great um, go on what's changed um, well I think that um yeah, I've only come to realise this quite recently, actually, but um, I think so much of my experience of policy shaping as an AD is determined by the context that you find yourself in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no point having a... Um, coming in with a specific policy as an AD and then finding the audience aren't interested in it or, you know, the local community don't support it for whatever reasons. And so my policy for Northampton was defined by a set of factors I found in Northampton when I arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, as was my policy for Headlong. It was defined by what mid-scale touring was and the demands of it, and out of that came an artistic policy. Mm-hmm. And that might have been a little less true of the Almeida because I feel like Headlong was a sort of developed brand and maybe the brand values associated with the work I've been making were continuous. But still, you know, there were specific things to do with the Almeida being what I call a zone two theatre. It's sort of, and I talked in my interview here for about... Joe Littlewood Stratford East or the Bouffe du Nord or these sort mm. of fame legendary zone two theatres yeah. and what it meant to be a sort of or Wuppertal the Tina Bauer Bauer's you know dance company mm-hmm. what, what it meant to be a sort of international class theatre in a um, specific locality mm. particularly an urban one yeah. um, I mean I guess one of the, the biggest the things I've, I've re- realised that I had to find most in terms of uh, reactive, contextual reshaping of policy at the Almeida were to do with the with something that's been bubbling along and is, you know, I think I, I think was an inheritance quite differently from Jonathan and Ian's time and Michael's time, which is to do with the um, deep underlying perception of the Almeida as a sort of uber bourgeois venue, and you know I, I understand why the you know it's on a residential street full of, you know, Georgian buildings. Cross the road uh, from Otolenghi. Cross the road from exactly. Um, but I think, you know, it's also part of the sort of ongoing 
post-austerity decade antagonism to the wealth gap in the wider sector and the fact that artists now are struggling to live in London and then when they perceive the kind of people as consuming culture being the haves and they're the have-nots, mm. then there's inev- inevitably a bit of a, a, supply, a sort of split there. Uh, and the truth of Islington is it's actually the most stratified borough, I think, in the country yeah, in terms of wealth. and the history of this place is a revolutionary one that has made that journey into into uh, comfort. Yeah, and I guess, you know, yesterday's revolution becomes today's normalcy. And I think, you know, Jonathan Ian didn't pursue a, what I'd call necessary sort of, queer theatre policy at Mm. all but I think their aesthetic was part of something that was revolutionary in the early 90s which was to do with yeah so some of those elements we now associate with sort of a I'm not saying with camp per se but it was Mm. sort of theatrical and it was it was sort of a bit like I guess the sort of classic Glasgow sits aesthetic coming to to London and Pierre Addy of course had come from more avant-garde and the you know experimental opera company that had been uh, opera festival that had been here I think some of that had drifted away under Michael's time mm. um, and I think you know, to be fair to Michael he was reacting to a, um, a big um, sort of financial black hole he inherited um, and had to sort of shore that up but I think also his interest was um, in a sort of he, he said to me I sort of when I was working here in 2008 that he, he saw the Almeida as a sort of pocket national theatre so it was sort of mm. a bit of everything um, and um Anyway, I felt like so the policy, our policy, wanted to kind of try and remind people that we were situated not just in a sort of Otto Lenghi environment, mm-hmm. um, and um, so that began to began to challenge sort of the the headlong legacy that was ongoing, mm-hmm. and um, and then it's evolved since then. My policy, I suppose. Okay, so that's. I'm just going to come go back and talk to you about some of the stuff you just said, because um, I think that's really interesting. That idea of the ebb and flow of the avant avant garde, because mm-hmm. I think that has to happen mm-hmm. because otherwise it ceases to be the avant garde. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How do you? Because I remember seeing your work when I was a student, and it feeling quite. I always felt like there was a bit of a fuck you. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, Prospero in the Arctic or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, I'm just really curious about your relationship to the avant-garde and how you feel yourself located and how that influences what you think about other things. Uh, you can also say I never think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, look, I, I think I... I guess I developed as an artist... <laughs> In either pre the internet or in the early phases of the internet and um, one of the things I think was gratifying about that is that I know in my fuck you phase <laughs> my more auteur phase I mean to be um, fair it was fuck you on the west end with Shakespeare so yeah, there was yeah, a balance yeah. there well I didn't I mean I suppose what I felt was that I didn't really have influences because it wasn't like you could go online and watch mm-hmm you know, Mila Rao or Bostomeyer or all these, you know, you're, you have so much more access now and, of course, more there's a more greater flow of mm. uh, international companies and international work. And I... So it was quite sort of self-derived. Um, uh, and I like to feel that those years when I was doing, I, I guess, developing a certain style or whatever, were self-generated rather than derivative. Mm-hmm. Um, was it avant-garde? I, I mean... No, I don't think it was at all. I think it felt... Um, 
I suppose I have always been sceptical about holy theatre. Um, Can actually, you define your term for me there? I think... Well, definitely when I graduated, I suppose, sort of Peter Brook still felt like a massive cornerstone for a lot mm-hmm. of theatre makers. And I... Although I've really liked some of Brooke's work and I find that book profound uh, and its bare bones, I think, are, you know, unimpeachable. I think think it's really important work. I felt I was watching a lot of people make boring shows, you know, Three Rocks and a sort of rain stick kind of. uh, I I feel like I saw that show recently. uh, and I and I was like, I don't. That's not the world I feel I'm interested in, or even the world that I feel. I mean, I feel so embarrassing heading towards, you know, forty six now. So it's it's shaming to even kind of invoke this. But it was hard, like coming out of the early nineties, out of Thatcherism. The sense it was going to change, which sort of, I suppose, had its roots a little bit in alternative comedy in the late 80s. But really, I think, for me, like, I guess what I was leaving school, 89 and 90, felt like this big musical explosion, partly led in the north by the Patty Anderson, partly led by, in London, by Soul to Soul and that, that, mm. that world. It felt like really new after a period of what felt like a lot of sterility through the mid-80s. And then I, I can't really overstate the influence of dance music actually on on my sensibility. And you know, I wasn't a big rave necessarily, but rave culture, the sort of music and the drugs of that period, I just felt like I felt like my generation were living a world that had nothing to do with the kind of classical theatre I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because it's a big step to go from like warehouse parties to. The Tempest in the Arctic, that wasn't at all. But I think I did feel like the way my generation wanted to express entertainment viscerally um, was kind of different and had nothing to do with Peter Brook. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, it, and um, so, yeah, so I'm rambling now, but I guess that, so, so that was a kind of influence and I, much more that and then... Um, I think postmodernism as an idea, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that high and low culture could playfully coexist, yes. you know, that you see in Zizek and Baudrillard, you know, that had been, you know, I was influenced by that, mm. um, Foucault even, and yeah, I guess that came slightly out of an academic background, but I think also I, I felt the other hugely influential thing for me was what was going on with the. YBAs, the um, Young British Artists, mm. and, and that those sensation, that exhibition, sort of, that there were these deeply theatrical, um, formally sort of antagonistic to the idea of the sacrosanctity of the artist. Mm. Uh, it's no coincidence that we made a show about the Chapman Brothers, they were a big influence on me. Um, I, I kind of loved all that. I guess also around the same time, in things like Charlie Kaufman films. Uh, now, what underpinned all that, I think, was a belief that I... You know, I was the kid who played with toys for hours setting up scenes. You know, I was a imaginative, deeply, deeply shy 
um, private child, like a lot mm-hmm. of directors. Yeah, we're all uh, outsiders looking at Yeah, and, 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 and subsequent to that, and having done a bit of analysis and stuff, I've kind of come to understand that, that there are roots to that. It isn't just pure, not just a genetic disposition. Mm. Um, but I think I was really... So, so that was true as an absolute, and it had informed, you know, I suppose, academically I was always a light being playful and provocative with ideas, mm-hmm. much to the infuriation of a lot of my teachers. Um, and then I felt like I was graduating into the mid-90s, and it's funny with what's going on at the moment, but that felt like a fiercely difficult time. I mean, I, ironically, given that it's even... It should be... People think it's more difficult now, but mm. I did feel... So, you know, I'm from all kinds of privilege, you know, and my name's Rupert, you know, much to my horror. <laughs> you know, I was public school educated, mm-hmm. I went to Cambridge, I'm a white man... Uh, from middle class background um, and I am fully aware of the opportunities that privilege has given me and, and uh, how it you know shapes me and, and how, how, how fortunate I am but also so I'm not I'm, there's no tiny violin here but it but it certainly wasn't welcome at the Royal Court in the mid 90s <laughs> yeah. uh, and didn't really feel welcome anywhere mm-hmm. and you know what's interesting about what's happened in the last year or so in theatre is that actually the arguments have been been certainly since all the 20 years I've been in the industry, mm. 25 years, they've just been as strong. It's just things have changed, mm. finally. Um, so I think I was pursuing... Uh, my aesthetic was being derived really from a, an anxiety that uh, my identity should shape my work mm. because I was worried that no-one wanted my identity. And so I wanted to create work that lived purely imaginatively and playfully and that wasn't informed by who I was but was was a sort of purely dream space mm. and you know so and I, I remember the Chapmans talking about one of the reasons they worked together was because they're brothers and so you couldn't work out who had made what part of the work and so, so it was less exposing yeah they were resist they resisted biography yeah um and I found that deeply appealing I sort of equally wanted to hide who I was mm. um uh, so I think that that shaped the work I was doing much more than like a, a, a will to go towards the avant-garde. Mm. I mean, I've always been into the avant-garde. You know, I, the, I mean, it's not a test. You can be yeah. like, I don't care about the avant-garde. Just you, you, that's that's fine. That's yeah. not what I'm asking for. I remember when I was at university, there were I was in a a year of a lot of people who wanted to direct plays. Yeah, <laughs> and I was nowhere near the most talented. Uh, so there was a guy, Laurie Sansom, who went, who yeah. actually had success at Northampton. He went to National Theatre Scotland. Um, he was doing really interesting work, almost entirely female company. Again, very. And then Chris Good was in my year. He was doing really interesting. He was making extraordinary work as a student, mm-hmm. like really, really breathtakingly beautiful work as a writer and mm-hmm. sound designer and performer and director. Uh, both of them, again, with quite a sort of, I guess, what we'd now call a. Yeah, a queer agenda. Mm-hmm. Chris's in particular, but Laurie's was, you know, Laurie's. I mean, I just felt like super reactionary compared to those guys. Yeah. Uh, and but I will so uh, one thing I will say is I've always been really drawn to because I suppose I embody <laughs> certain kinds of privilege and patriarchy. I'm always really drawn to not drawn. I, I am. I'm interested in how rocks are thrown in my face artistically. Yeah, that's really interesting because you are 
you are shorthand with mm. I, I give you all love and respect and admiration <laughs> but th- there is a sense of like th- that um yeah you 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 tick all the boxes of the shorthand for privilege mm. right and that that so must nice. be an interesting way to move through the arts world right now yeah i mean i sort of feel like all those things that shape me i guess what i mean your consciousness begins maybe what when you're seven or eight and you know the things that people perceive as um part of privilege i guess in general slightly fall away around post-university so that's what 12, 14 years of my life and I feel like I've had as much since then mm. just being an artist or director or whatever um, but yeah it, it, of course it shapes um, one sense of responsibility uh, so talk to me a bit about that because um, it's interesting I'm, I'm exactly 10 years younger than you right. <laughs> and I have a, quite a lot of the same like I'm probably from a less economically privileged mm. background but I you know I went mm. to a fancy school and I'm yeah. very well educated and uh, yeah um, and I also feel that it took me a long time to understand that I had the right to speak yeah. about anything. Um, and so I, I, I see some kinship in that, where this, uh, which is kind of interesting because most of my practice mm. has been in the throwing rocks of Rupert Gould's <laughs> side of the fence, right? Um, I mean, look, I, mean, I, I, look, I, I think, uh, I guess, I'm really... I think, I think Bar maybe Richard III, I'm sure there's evidence this isn't the case, but I feel like pretty much for the last six or seven years all I've done is new work. And, um, you know, de facto as a director, that is... I, I, I do believe... My politics are on the left. My belief in artistic creation is... Or, or, or no, but my sense of our, the creative act is if one can apply that metric on the right, in that I don't mm. really believe that the arts are... I think I think a lot of people who are on the left in the arts want their practice also to... You want them... They want them to be towards, instrumental. Well, no, I, I think they want it to be dem- democratic and inclusive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that room as well. But as a producer, as much as a director, I do believe in lead artists. Yeah. I believe in directors and writers. Um, and above all, I believe in writers. Sometimes the director might be the writer in by another means, but I, I don't believe in devising, I don't believe in multi-authorship, and not to... I, I would love, love to be proved wrong, but this is I... Awesome. Uh, you don't believe in devising? Tell me about that. I just feel like all the great devising companies that I really love mm. have emerged to reveal that they had a single artistic yeah, voice behind them. what's the difference between devising and, and writing? I think somebody is in control of the evening. Yeah. And that can be somebody tapping the keyboard, or Mm -hmm. it can be somebody sitting behind a desk calling themselves the director, Mm -hmm. or it can be somebody within the devising company who is... um, Secretly shaping it from within. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And, um, look, and I know that... It's not that... When I say I don't believe in it, I'm really happy to... to, um, to be proved wrong mm. I just like I've been doing it for 25 years and um, you know I've worked with you know the Wooster Group or um, uh, we've had the Wardroom on someone here recently mm. you know I know the Caliste lot uh, I look at Dead Centre um, I'm not saying it's one voice but I just don't think it's everybody in the room yeah. everybody in the room contributes mm-hmm. absolutely but I do think I believe in leadership. I believe, you believe in, in the pyra- singular. I believe in the pyramid. 
which is really and people don't want that to be the case because it sounds like there is inherent um, hierarchies there but I think there are hierarchies in creativity they just are and um, so yeah it's funny I was in um, I was in an interview for an artistic director job the other day that I didn't get Mm -hmm. and 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 they were kind of talking to me about how I ran my room and I I found it really difficult because I sort of I do write yeah I run a really like friendly collaborative let's all have a Mm. conversation room but also I I am not going to let anything happen on stage that I don't choose Mm -hmm. and so I think pretending that that isn't the case is disingenuous but I think quite a lot of us are encouraged to do it especially in my you know in my generation I think they think you know obviously they think it's happened this is this is coming back to the issue about privilege that is more and more people are uh, particularly in London now coming to London because the, the unfortunate economics of the way that economic, mm. the, the theatre works where the most expensive city to live in in the country is the one that seems to have all the resource mm. uh, and the resources is a sort of diminishing regionally so you have that problem of more and more people coming to the city finding it harder and harder to live there financially which I totally understand um, you know we had an, uh, an application for our resident director scheme we, you know we're already looking at 300 applicants for 10 places and this is just for effectively an assistance mm. scheme you know, the, the numbers are so huge in terms of the pressure yeah. and it's not just directors it's on designers whatever and you have now have social media, so the the disenfranchised voices of all those held without are mm. loud and animated. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a that's a uh, and so inevitably those those voices who are shut out may, will want to challenge the structures that are seeming mm-hmm. to shut them out. Um, and good, you know, they should do. That's that's like that's revolutionary movements. That's how that happens. Um, that doesn't mean that some of the selective processes that are leading artists onto the stage are wrong. Mm. And the, the sieves that those ideas and artists pass through may be the right sieves. You know, I say about... I mean, I applied for loads of, loads of artistic director jobs before I got my one at Northampton. Mm. Was I ready before? I would suspect I probably was. Mm. Do I understand why they didn't give them to me? Now I do, absolutely. So, yeah. you know... Life is long, and I'm, you learn through your knockbacks. Oh, tell me about it. I'm, keep, I'm currently keeping a spreadsheet of uh, jobs I have not got and the feedback on why. And yeah. one day when I spot a pattern, I'll be like, well, that's the answer. But Listen, I, 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 I think rejection is a... Um, it's uh, really important. Hugely important. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I was... Because uh... also, it's like, it's like dating... I, I, I'm, I'm polyamorous, so I spend a lot of dating. It's a lot of time dating, so all of my uh-huh. references are about uh, that. Uh-huh. Um, in the, like, if that person doesn't want you, I do not. You know, I'm not going to bed with someone that doesn't want to be there with me. <laughs> I'm not. You know, I'm not committing yeah, my creative yeah. identity to that. You know. Yeah. Um, no, I. I mean, look. I think there's a reason that our source myths and our narratives are about struggle. Over. You know, they're, they're not about utopia and happiness and. Ambrosia and free love mm. they're about trial and adversity and you know we are shaped through our, our through all those things yeah. and I mean people that's the thing I feel you know, angriest about some of the accusations that, that people make against other people not necessarily me but 
Mm. No, you have no idea what people have been through personally. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what the state of their mental health is, what mm. their familial background might be, what their the education kind, yeah. background was. Mm. You know what their experience in the early part of their career may be. People just make huge assumptions, and yeah. um, uh, you know, in reality, there's probably nobody who's working and really speaking to an audience and bringing audiences in. You know, whatever you may think of their work, who hasn't had to struggle to mm. to get there. Yeah, I think that um, I want to go back to something else in a minute, but um, I think that sense of just right now that I guess the difference between practitioners coming up now who, who are sort of ten years behind me, mm. so twenty years behind you, is that sense of there's always because of Twitter and mm. you know, the internet there is always someone throwing rocks at you. Mm. Um, it isn't just Rupert Gould who gets rocks thrown at him. Mm. Um, you know, if, if someone sees your little show at CPT and mm. thinks it mm. was obnoxious, yeah. Uh, you're going to hear about it, yeah. and, and I, I guess you have to grow a much thicker skin if you're dealing with that all the time. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's this thing about uh, the pie, <laughs> like you know. And I feel this sort of with some hard left politics at the moment that there's so much fixation on how the pie is split, mm-hmm. and there are some people. Now, who, hang who, on, I'm not. I'm getting more centrist with my old age, but there's quite a lot of splitting of the pie obsession on the hard right as well. Yeah, yeah, Everyone's obsessed with splitting the pie. Yeah, I suppose what I'm interested in is is, um, uh, people, and this is different in capitalist economics, but but, um, culturally you make the pie bigger. Mm -hmm. So those people who, you know, actually like, like, if you build a new theatre, you know, I don't care about the policy. The fact you've made a new theatre and a new space is a great achievement, a great thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you find an audience, mm-hmm. you know, and your work grows, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to judge Tina or whatever the musical, like whatever I haven't seen. It's probably brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I feel like you know. I remember when, you know, the whole thing about Peter Hall not being celebrated at the Olivier's. I was like, mm. you know, was Peter Hall an influence on me as a director? Not at all. Was he an interesting man as a director? Not really. He was a different generation, although I, I like his books. I think mm. they're really interesting. But we are in his debt about the Arts Council and the RC of the National and, and the idea of state funding of the arts. Mm. Uh, you know, without Peter Hall, we would have less work. We yeah. just would. And um, so, yes, the, the how the pie is split is really, really important. But I also feel the most important thing is to communicate. And there'd be complexity in that. Like, I think your your uh, allegory of splitting mm. the pie mm-hmm. requires clean uh, knife lines. And I think that's often where that silification of things is mm. where we get really fucked up. Yeah. Um, I So we've talked quite a lot about stuff that you have carried with you that has impacted you. Mm-hmm. Um, what... One, I, you know, there are some questions that I'm going to ask at the end that I ask everyone, but like, I'm really curious about what you are seeking to pass on of that. Like, what, at the Almeida or, or in general? <laughs> whatever. You choose. Um, what, because, because there's not... There's probably not as much difference as people think between what you want to pass on and what you want your Almeida to pass on, right? I mean, I'm uh, assuming you don't want to bankrupt the organisation and hopefully not yeah. burn it down. But barring that, like, in terms of your impact on the culture... What do you want it I to suppose, be? you know, I, I am interested in um, 
provocative, big political plays that are theatrically exciting. I mean, that has always been, you know, I guess what I'm interested in. And um, each of those adjectives one could anatomise in interesting mm. ways. But practically what that would mean, I suppose, is a, is a belief that theatre can speak to the now, mm-hmm. not just in a narrow, this is my story about my world, but about our story. Mm-hmm. Of course, my story can be our story. I totally understand that. And, you know, I'd say, you know, a show like, I don't know, um, the writer that we did here was, you know, very linked to Ella as an artist, but I felt was a very inclusive story mm-hmm. for what the convers- where the conversation was yeah. at. Um, so, you know, I, I feel it's our responsibility that we should always be shaping... You know, we live in such a crazy world at the moment. It's changing so fast. It's his theatre's job to get, bring people together in a live space, in a room, and try and make sense of it. And also to try and challenge the increasingly massive fault lines between different parties and different sectors. Um, and I hope that it's a body of work that promotes that as an idea for theatre and that also is a legacy of... Uh, maybe a generation, it doesn't have to be a generation or a, a group of artists who you know, we've brought to attention um, who are visionary in that field um, you know I, 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 sometimes I think of it as a you know, I guess we are more narrow and deep we only have six shows a year, mm. we've got up to six from five, that's not, we're not the national so we try and invest as deeply and as fully as possibly in, in each show yeah. you know, they get a lot of artistic support from the team here um, and I guess maybe underlying that is, is partly as a producer I don't feel I'm very at this stage anyway able to, to produce more than that mm-hmm. I feel like I, I wouldn't be giving of my best yeah. but also um, you know I, I don't think there's a, I don't think it's purely structural that every five or ten years probably only you're lucky if you get ten major theatre makers in, out of a period, if you include mm-hmm. writers and directors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is rare. I think real talent is rare, and it's mm-hmm. our responsibility to look everywhere for it mm-hmm. and in a non-discriminatory way. But um, I sort of probably believe that if you see the embers of real talent, that is extraordinarily rare, mm-hmm. and it is my job as an artist director to fan them as much as possible to turn that into a sort of flame. Um, so it probably isn't much more complicated than a bunch of people you go wow they're great they started at the Almeida or or they did their (laughs) best work at the Almeida maybe that they um, you know raised their game as a a, particularly as a writer or director but maybe an actor as well or a designer you know the the working here had had, um, opened them up a bit creatively Mm. Um, I think I'd be happy with that I don't don't have aspirations massively beyond that I mean do I want to yes of course I want to change the audience here a bit although I think we have done that a lot Um, and I suppose I probably also further down the line I think it is one of us it's not really probably my job but needs to get on the front foot about the case for funding again because I feel like for some reason we're all killing each other about what we're doing rather than the government who are you know quietly just emptying the pot Um, and while all that happens as a society we lose the ability to talk about 
art and culture in any way. Yeah, and we literally, the argument that the arts should be subsidised is having to be rebooted now, yeah. having spent 50 years being fought. Yeah. That's a disaster. Yeah. So, I'm, so I feel like I, we have to all do that, but I think also I have to be mindful about trying to um, recognise that it is a mixed economy now and we have 320 seats. I think ticket prices are invidious in London and we have a real desire to try and open that up much more with mm-hmm. our under 25 schemes but also just try and hold ticket prices down I think wages are appalling <laughs> particularly for actors but also for creatives mm. freelance freelancers you know at, at some point those economics get really complicated you can't have a finite number of seats hold your prices down and pay people properly and balance the books yeah. unless you find money elsewhere and I think so that's the other big project what if we like did less Less work. Less, like, th- yeah. What if we did less bad theatre? But, but it's quite a lot No one sets theater. out to do bad theatre. No, I know, but there, there are some repeat offenders out there. Well... Like, I, 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 I'm, I'm just never, curious, in this world where we can't get more money... I think we should be careful about can. it, because, like, the prejudices you make about, like, what is bad theatre is... Is that the same as low-risk theatre? Because if, like, sometimes you take a risk and someone will be bad, and the risks aren't necessary to take yeah, on... Yeah, no, I also hate low-risk theatre, so... Um, I mean, yeah, we've looked at doing, say, four shows a year rather than six, mm. um, or smaller cast sizes, that would make a big change. Mm. But, like, why do less work? I mean, like, that feels, like, really counterintuitive to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 again, it's the pie slicing. Yeah. Like, I'm saying, grow the pie, don't redistribute it. Okay. And so find more money. And it gets, it's why I get really angry. And we don't actually make a huge amount of money from our commercial exploitations. We're trying to do better on the deals, but realistically, actually, people might look at us and go, oh, but we don't. But we do make... But it is a revenue mm. stream now. But no one anywhere has any money, anywhere, to, but, yeah, to, but, to pay for that, for that exploitation, you know. But, you know, I think there are. You know, we look at... You know, there's a sloshing money around in TV at the moment. There's so much money in TV with subscription mm. channels. We are directly feeding that, with, particularly with the writers, but also mm-hmm. other talent. You know, there are ways of leveraging that. I don't quite know what they are yet, but we're looking into <laughs> them. You know, there's um, a burgeoning... I mean, Audible are producing. Audible, there's the whole games industry. There's mm-hmm. a lot of money in storytelling. People, yeah. there's a hell of a lot of money. People are staying at home sitting on their nice sofas and watching their increasingly large TVs or playing games. And there's a lot... And, and we are the architects and the vanguard of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying... I'm mean, sound terribly right-wing. Like, the, the government should be paying for it. But if they don't, what are you going to do? Just, like, redistribute the pie endlessly as the pie shrinks and shrinks and shrinks mm-hmm. and shrinks and shrinks until we're arguing over pennies. Or how maybe as an art form, we need to evolve to a place where we can play better. With with gaming and with recording, yeah, or, or, or we embrace and we haven't done this at the MA because I feel like it, it's not our duty, it's not our remit or not our remit, I guess, or not our priority at the moment. But you know, I see people like sniping about the National doing Curious and Warhorse or whatever, and you go, no, good on them, Matilda and the RSC. It's like if you like, why shouldn't you know arts organisations? try and generate more income to try and do more work for all those disenfranchised artists and audiences excluded audiences I mean it's, it's really important that we are and also if you come from where I come from which is not a, a culturally engaged background like my my mum might have taken me to see Matilda yeah she wouldn't take me to see anything at the Royal Court or the National or here you know like, I, I'm a, we have a young board here who are sort of advising us on all sorts of things they're all 25 from really you mm. know 
very different backgrounds. I'm amazed how uninterested they are in avant-garde theatre. <laughs> they just want cheaper tickets for mm. good theatre. They want to see Andrew Scott in Hamlet more than they want to see Dance Nation. Mm. Now, now, that doesn't mean we don't do Dance Nation, but I was really struck by, actually, it's about... It's not just avant-garde work for emerging audiences. Mm. Actually, emerging audiences want to see the work that, actually, traditional audiences want to see. They just can't afford it. And... You know, so there's much more nuance, yeah. I think, than some of the sort of... Yeah, maybe the whole idea of avant-garde and not is a false dichotomy that we should stop buying into. Maybe it's just different ways to tell stories and key into different emotional and intellectual experiences. Yeah, and also I think we should sort of... I don't know, just be less prejudicial about... I was speaking to a couple who come to the theatre quite regularly. They, you know... I guess they're in their 50s... They probably have made some money. Um, they might superficially look exactly like the kind of traditional Almeida audience that mm-hmm. a lot of people would be really, you know, hostile to. They're both working class kids from Glasgow who went to art school. One's in graphic design, the other's an illustrator. They've done well. Mm. Like, they want to see the really avant garde work. They want to see Sasha Ware stuff. They don't want to see King Charles III, for example. I love that in your uh, world, Sasha Ware is avant garde. Yeah, okay, I love that. That's avant garde. Love we are. her work. Yeah. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Or, or Dickie Bow, or whatever. They, yeah. they want to see, you know. But of course, you go in them and see them with a glass of white wine and go, oh, bloody hell. And, you know, I feel like there's so much, like, judgment all the time. Maybe about, we should like, all just who, stop being dicks to each other. Yeah, yeah, and just go, like, you know, for me, the rich donor who falls asleep watching a show is undeserving of a ticket. But that is also true of the 17-year-old who's brought by their school group, who also chats or sends their whole time on the phone. It's like, mm. we want people who want to listen to the story. The work has to be good enough to communicate them. I get that. But let's not... Let's... let's. There is no bad celebration. If people feel great about being in a theatre, about the work, that is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean... Yeah. Too much negativity. Okay, uh, I have two last questions for you. Um, one, why do you do this? <laughs> Being an AD or directing? Ooh, nice dichotomy there. Let's do directing. Um, oh, I just... Um, well, many reasons. I suppose like, at root, the sad truth is I'm a bit of a groupie for actors. I just like... You know, I just think they're really entertaining, and I and I, it's the only way I can be around them is to direct, for the stage manage, um, and I really uh, enjoy um, the sort of I don't know. It's a strange secret language you have with a director and actor about their performance and developing that. So I, do, I so that's a sort of social thing, but I also. Um, you know, just in a, in a childish, you know, kid with toys thing. I just love seeing a show on stage. I mm. love the um, the wonder of that. It still is really always. We, we had our first preview of a show last night, and I just, yeah. I still, I still was like, it looks amazing. Look what we've done in this room. <laughs> oh, it wasn't even my show. Um, so, so that, and I feel like, um, despite all the headaches around theatre, there is less bullshit about how you get to that point. Mm-hmm. than there is in TV and film. Um, and being an AD, I think, because... Um, I like I, I do like a family. I like relationships beyond the five or six weeks of rehearsal period. 
um, but also I, I have a sort of um, whatever like a disposition to strategy I suppose artistic strategy and um, I'd love to be a great 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 director <laughs> um I think occasionally I've done great, great shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know I'm not Evo. You know, yeah. it's funny when Evo arrived and you're like, oh, right, that's that's like so much better than like me. What's also <laughs> great is it's so much better than all of us. Uh, bow down, it's not always great. That's Yeah, human. and also it's the point of view, like it depends where you're looking at it from. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But technically, it's still pretty, pretty yeah. special. Uh, so I feel like I'm in the whatever percentile as a director but I feel actually weirdly as an artistic director I think and it slightly saddens me to say this in some ways I think I might that might be what I'm best at um, in terms of producing other people programming mm-hmm. um, and I know people will probably look at this theatre and go that's rich and they might hate our work but um, but fine <laughs> some people don't um, Does, do you feel under siege a bit here? I, I'm, um, I'm psychoanalyzing you. No. Oh yeah, we have. People write really, really horrible things about us, and that's like uh, anything. I mean, oh, like uh, I mean, what was it? Waving your pussies around. Good old Quentin. Oh, who cares about Quentin? I don't care about Quentin. No, no. I mean, like you have to respect people. To um, no, I, I like you know. You see people write stuff like I mean, just appalling things, um, and. Uh, Do I feel under siege? No, look, I know probably we are against the norm a bit now, and and the root of that probably is is to do with my identity. Um, but I also think that people are still really, a lot of people still really excited about the program at the Almeida, mm. and um, I think there, <laughs> I think there is this weird. We, when we did the writer, we had this interesting. Uh, thing where the really right wing press so the mail and something yeah, yeah. Uh, and the really left wing press so like I guess by which I mean the time out stage some of the bloggers yeah uh, said the same thing and it had been kind of rumbling and basically the left wing press would have liked the play and the right wing didn't mm-hmm. whatever that's true of most most probably the Almeida yeah. uh, but what they both said is how much they couldn't stand the Almeida audience and I was really, like, horrified. And, of course, for the right-wing press, it's because they look like remaining commentariat. And for the left-wing <laughs> press, it's because they look like hand-wringing liberals with no responsibility. Yeah. Um, neither of which are true, actually, statistically. Mm-hmm. Um, but that angered me. I was like... And that's to do with... The, I think that's yeah, to do with the specific me. thing about... Our, uh, yeah, I think that's to do with Islington. It's like yeah. what Islington is and the how people... It, it's sort of like... A buzzword for Granita and yeah, Ottolenghi, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, um, I just think like grow up to those people, like come to come to our audience. I think it's mm. bullshit. Um, so and actually, so, if you are in this audience, like I sit at the Royal Court. That's in Sloane Square. I sit at the Littleton. It's like don't yeah. tell me our audiences like that. Those audiences, and I'm respectful of of those audiences. Like, and don't tell me Islington is actually like more privileged than Chelsea or or, or Notting Hill with the gay. You know, I've worked there as well. Mm. It's like, it's just, but there's something about Islington 
that gets under people's nose. I suppose it's because there's something unapologetically gin and tonic about the home counties audience that comes to the West End and some of the national and some of the core. Whereas whereas ours does kind of sometimes like honestly I'm down with the kids or something. But uh, much more metropolitan. Yeah. Do I, but but I don't. Do I find siege uh, actually much less than we did? I think I, I feel like um, we've opened up the organisation much much more. Uh, we had loads of sort of interesting porous hemorrhaging in the mm. organisation either way in the last couple of years and I think that's led to really interesting discussions and I feel like it's a really, I feel it's an organisation I'm really really proud of I, I wish do you know what, I really wish this building we're in now 108 off up mm-hmm. street I just wish that was um, part of the the main theatre complex because mm. if people could see all the artists and kids and young people who are coming a part of our organisation what our Mm. green room looks like on a day to day basis they could see the sort of chaotic super to be honest um, rich diverse eccentric but they we're down the road and it's all behind a you know a a secret door so you don't see that when uh, uh, you know when I go to theatres like I don't know the young way called the National you see see all that in the foyer and you think Mm. We do that as well, but we do our own That's version it. of that, but it's invisible. And um, so I'd, I'd love that to be more declared. And actually, a bit more partic- sung. Yeah, I, I, I think I think the stuff that our um, participation team connecting to our main program do is is really really like um, exemplary, cutting edge in, in a way. And, and I, I wish people could see that. But it's our job, our job to make that more visible. And, and um, I hope they do. Okay, last question, because mm-hmm. I'm aware I have a minute or something That's left fine. with you. Um, <laughs> when you go from this place, yeah. and I encourage you to think of that as this astral plane rather than this small cupboard. Right. <laughs> um, when you go, you know, when you leave, um, what would you like... What do you want people to say about you? What would you like to have left changed? What would you like to leave behind? You know, what 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 are the bullet points in your eulogy? I feel deeply conflicted about that because go uh, yeah, tell me why. Uh, you know, because it is an ephemeral medium, and I think that that part of its its philosophical mystical power is that it does vanish, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we are written on the sand. Um, so I try and endeavour not to care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you also just said that you wanted to be a great, great, great director. Yeah, like, but I recognise uh, my limitations. Um, uh, <sighs> Sorry, I was just... Yeah. I'm with you on the ephemerality, but I'm also calling bullshit because also a lot of your... So much so much of how you seem to move through the world mm. is powered by a self-belief. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you say that? Um, In the work, or...? yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Self-belief. I don't know. Well, as in, like, I think it's good, or, or... Or certainly, like, you have a like you have a right to speak. You have a right... God, I feel exactly the opposite at the moment. I've talked about, I talked about this the other day. I oh, feel like I have, I have a right to make work, but I don't have a right to speak at all. Um, te- ooh, oh, God, another hour, please. Um, <laughs> what is the difference between making work and having a right... What, like, are you not speaking uh, 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 when you're making work? You are, but that's art. You know, art, art, art is a way of speaking, but it is not didacticism. You know, I try. One of the things we try and do here, actually, I, I even thought about like whether to do this meeting is like, yeah. I'm, I, 
I, I don't really believe in articulating policy and sort of, you know, I really admire what Sean did with Secret Theatre and everything, mm. but or Vicky with Open Court, but like I, I feel like we try to make the work speak for itself, and people can infer the policy mm-hmm. out of that, and uh, I still feel that really. So I feel like the work is the speech, um, and people, and, and 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 by nature it has to be ambiguous, so it can't be. You know, he's offered up into the world. It's not didactic. It's not. I don't believe in didacticism in art or. Yeah, in but Rupert Gould, <laughs> come on, sorry, come the fuck on. Our society is woven from the stories we tell about it in ourselves, and you are—you have said probably fifteen times mm. today. You've talked about storytelling, and that's what you yeah. do. So sorry, I'm just—I've decided I'm going to be a dick to you. Apparently, that's what I've decided today. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I suppose, I suppose, okay, so I so what I think is that uh, cultures live in states of anxiety, and theatre's job or art's job is to interrogate that anxiety and possibly bring healing to it. Mm-hmm. And the job of narrative art, and I sort of I guess most theatre is narrative, and most of my theatre is narrative, is to through narrative to hold the most complex form and the most profound form of the argument that sits across each anxiety I don't think it is there to declare either way Mm -hmm. uh, whatever and I don't you know it's amazing how little when working dramaturgically with writers or or in production one is thinking of like oh we need to tell them this your 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 aim I always think as a director is to hold the argument in the most compelling tension as late and long as possible Mm -hmm. Uh, that was always art and headlong ethos. Um, so, so that's what I mean. I think, I think art is ambiguous. Ambiguity sits in recognising the complexity of anxiety, the complexity of the deep disturbance it causes, and through argument, ideally embodied in character, or but it doesn't have to be visually, uh, those ideas are held in tension, and that is what the art does. That is not the same as saying, I think it's wrong that refugees aren't allowed through. Mm-hmm. Calais or whatever mm-hmm. that's a different thing which is not to say I didn't think that show was brilliant by the way mm-hmm. but actually I found that show brilliant not only because it was saying that because it was also making me think about space and communality and materialism mm-hmm. in different ways um, so in that sense I'm not, I hope I'm I don't believe in yeah preaching um, and I don't feel confident to preach I feel confident about trying to drill in confident in my integrity of, in, of trying to drill into those anxieties mm. and uh, and ask those questions um, and why do I feel confident in that I guess because I feel like that's what 25 years of doing it does is you kind of get better at recognising what the deep structures are of the argument mm. uh, so legacy <laughs> so, so your eulogy uh, if we said that you held space for complexity um, I think I I suppose I, like, what are the qualities I most admire in other people? This is a tangential but linked mm-hmm. thing. And I think, unfortunately, one of them is wit. I just find, like, I've always talked to people who make me laugh uh, in a facile way. Yeah. Um, uh, but I feel if I could just sit on that for a bit, then I think I have a lot of um, interest in this idea of humility, I guess, and, and like what it means to have humility as an artist and how you balance the very thing I started with about the pyramid and sort of top-down leadership and the need to fill the empty page, the empty stage, lead the room with genuine humility about what you don't know and 
where your prejudices might be and where your certainty might be built on unsteady foundations. Um, and I, I think I'm quite low status as an AD in the organisation and quite low status in the rehearsal room. I think most people who would work with me would go, and some, sometimes I get more attacked for not being confrontational enough. Um, and I tend to be, or, or, or for te- or to listening to too many people, I get a lot of that, like a sort of over-inclusive, as though like it's a form of stasis. Mm. Um, I hope, I suppose, that people would... I mean, how can you, this is utterly t- contradictory to say that the thing I hope everyone remember before is my humility, but I would like to feel that the organisation we ran was um, uh, humble in the face of what he didn't know. Mm. Nice. David Jobs said he hoped he'd be remembered for just getting out of the way. At the end? Yeah. That was, which I thought... I, this, I'm the, not ready to go yet, so... No, no, no. <laughs> it's just an interesting thing, right, about, like, that humility. That That's just a thread that I'm noticing as I talk to these, as I do these things. Yeah, it, it's a very... Um, leaving is really hard. I mean, I'm I'm an AD and I've done it twice now. Mm. It's incredibly emotional. Mm. It... it, it um, it, 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 like deeply traumatising yeah. when uh, I left I mean entirely different mm. level to you but when I left Oval House I uh, I think I'd kind of I, I sort of hated the place by the time mm. because it had been quite just I hadn't I'd, try, I'd worked so hard and it hadn't pushed I hadn't managed to push it far mm. enough up the hill Yeah, and I sobbed walking out the door mm. while absolutely being sure it was the right thing to do so I, I get yeah. the emotionalness of that, that leaving this thing that you've loved yeah. for so long. But I don't know what it is that you... Of course, what you leave is not the work you're going to do and the, and the building or the organisation that exists, you know, uninterested in you as you move on. What you leave is the memories mm. because the memories somehow stay live while you're still there. You know, I feel like... I feel like I go up to the theatre and... You know, I'd be in the tech for King Charles III and Tim would still be alive and I, uh, it's still there mm. while you're... Um, it's very like parenting, actually. I find it weirdly about parenting. It's sort of... You look at your child and go, can I see the three-year-old you and the 13-year-old you? Like, I... The the the, the margins of day-by-day change are so infinitesimal mm. that I lose it. But I know... But suddenly you'll be gone and the three-year-old will be very vivid to me. Yeah. And I and so I feel like the soup of all the stuff we've made at the Almeida still is Help. in the room. And, um, yeah, like a, a balloon that's going to be punctured or something. I, I I feel sick about about the idea of leaving. Which is not to say that I... You know, hold that's on okay. It's not a requirement that you're about to quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 obviously, it's interesting. There's so many new kinds of artistic leaders coming into the industry now, and um, you know, I wonder whether I whether the work I've done, or, or, or even if there is an identity of the work, that it will be um, as irrelevant as you know. Rattigan was to John Osborne. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, 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 I'm fascinated by, for example, that moment. Yeah, what must have happened when these playwrights who made a living and be their culture suddenly were redundant? It's not, is it? Like, Mm. it's it's never irrelevant because it's what had to go before. Yeah, 
but then you know I know when I was doing more subconsciously authored work like when you were saying when I was doing things like The Tempest I, I'd have a lot of people come up to me and go oh my god your six characters made such an influence on me or uh, you know oh, I love what you did in Macbeth yeah, yeah. Um, which I don't get now about the new plays that I've been working on um, but I you know you have to pass that on you, you can't always be you know Lepage. And also you <laughs> have to let it sit. Like, there are things that influenced me. Like, actually, I, <laughs> bless me, when I saw those shows, mm. all three of those shows, I didn't know that 15 years later I would remember them and think mm. about them. And so that impact you kind of, you, you have to let sit. Yeah. I mean, that is the great thing about theatre, isn't it? It's like, we all go to loads of it. And, and meaning like say, is never fixed. Meaning yeah. evolves across the audience's lifetime as they think about that piece of art. Yeah, but then there's memorable ones, particularly, and you tend to see them when you're young, but they're not always. You know, if I think of The Damned when I saw this a couple of years ago, or um, Mnemonic, the first time I saw the Mnemonic Felicity show, you know, I'd, I'd be horrified at seeing Mnemonic again in case it wasn't, it, you know, as nearly as good as I remember yeah. it, which was you know, life-definingly good. Yeah. I'm sure it was. But, uh, um, you know, so I suppose you try and build a place in your heart for those shows yourself mm. and and again a bit like parenting it's weird how you sort of love and cherish and seek to polish in your mind um the ones that were most hostilely received <laughs> uh, but um shit i'm only 46 you know still got some time left. <laughs> yeah all right uh Anything, is there anything that you feel like you should add or you want to say? or About legacy? About, I don't, anything you want. I mean, it's not really like we've been that focused. Uh, God, not really. I don't think, I mean, I feel like we've talked quite a lot about politics yeah. and that was like kind of... Oh, no, you've uh, got off lightly. I'm usually much worse than this about politics. Um, no, not really. I mean... Like I say, the, the work, work, the work for speaks itself. for itself. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rupert. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 